the lie that poetry tells is constant as the truth itself without the lies and the false beliefs where State of the Theory podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm an India. And we are your theory doctors. Hello. Welcome back. So this is episode five, which is part two of our two-part look at fascism in the 21st century. So last week, you may remember, we looked at the various ways in which the Trump movement and the Modi movement in America and India, respectively, uses particular tropes of fascism in order to construct their vision of what the nation should be like. We were trying to identify what Diego Mairano, in a, in a recent article in The Wire, we'll put the link in the description, uh, has described specifically with the, with the context of Modi. And Mairano says, quote, what is emerging is not a series of unrelated episodes, but a clear pattern aimed at ending the supposed dominance of secular or anti-national elements, the two terms by and large coinciding, on India's cultural life. And even though Mayurano is talking specifically about the Indian context, there are corollaries, matching patterns in the, in the way the Trump movement is taking over in America. There are connections, although the religious discourse is quite different. Yes. Um, interestingly so yes. in the United States. In this episode, we are moving away from the focus on how the nation is constructed to what? To the construction of the outsider. Specifically, the construction of the outsider citizen the person who is a part of the state, but who is not a member of the nation. And we are carrying on this, the, the way we structured our last episode using Umberto Eco's um, outline of eternal fascism, or uh, fascism. And one of the points Eco makes is the identifiable paranoia that exists within fascist thought a paranoia that there is a plot, there is a conspiracy, there, there are dangerous outsiders, both outsiders who are actually outside the nation and outsiders who are enemies within, who are there to deliberately turn the nation upside down, to, to destroy what the fascist force has fought for and has fought and is fighting to preserve. So does this paranoia resonate with your reading of Trump? Definitely, definitely. There's, um, I talk quite a bit about the importance in American historiographical imaginings, um, particularly of, of American expansionism, of American weakness. So there is a, a focus, an obsession with the vulnerability and the weakness that is inherent in the United States, in America. And that is contradictorily countered with the opposing position, but that is just as much a part of 
this ideology, which is that America is great, and that these two things, the one justifies our existence, and the other justifies Trump. And it is the contradictory nature that, uh, that allows us to say, well, well, Trump is proposing this undemocratic, and many would argue, many of his critics argue, un-American way of life. But that is a necessary evil, in a sense, in order to make America great again. So, so the wall that he proposes between America and Mexico, is that wall a reflection of a kind of paranoia that means that America needs to protect its exceptionalism with a physical wall? Partly, yes. There's, it's, the wall is both a show of strength and a show of weakness at the same time. The wall is a fix mm. to a problem, which is America, America's weak borders, mm. America's porous borders. But at the same time, it is a show of American might and American strength at keeping people out mm. and at demanding that Mexico pay for the wall, which is a delightful twist. It really is. And I've, I've been thinking about that, that strategy. Is that a way, do you think, to get Mexico to admit to a kind of conspiracy against America? Is, is, the, is Mexico being asked to pay for it because Mexico is somehow responsible for this wave of undesirable, within square quotes, immigration into America? Is that why Mexico should pay? I think it is. Yes. Mm. Although, to be perfectly honest, it's, it's unclear. Mm. Um, but yes, it's Mexico who has wronged the United States. Mm. And therefore, it's a debt that Mexico owes to the United States. And is the the difference in the way in which the U.S.-Mexico border is talked about and this proposed wall and the way the U.S.-Canada border is talked about, is that purely to do with race or is there an underlying more subtle difference? There's race and there is capital. There's mm. There's poverty and race at the heart of it that yeah. work together. Mm. Um, what's interesting about the wall and about the idea of walls and fences is we talked about Wendy Brown last week, and her the main argument of, of her book is that walls and fences are being constructed as a response to waning national sovereignty, that in fact the erection of walls... Um, and and militarized fences or any sort of physical boundary is in fact an indicator of the forces of globalization mm. undermining the nation states feeling of safety and security mm. so nation states are recognizing some sort of whether this is true or not um, is not the point of her argument. But nation states are feeling as if their sovereignty is being undermined. And the building of a wall is one particular act of regaining sovereignty or, or territorial autonomy. Which is interesting because if you think of the Indian context, if it were possible 
India would love to have a wall between India and Pakistan. Oh yeah. Geography means that's never going to happen. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but other than that, or other than maybe the Indochina border as well, the the kind of fascistic, muscular, triumphalist nationalism that we are we are discussing is perfectly happy to have a globalized transnational economic identity. You know, the transfer of capital through multinational companies coming in and taking over various sectors of India, including defense, then the Indian government is perfectly happy with that. So the question is, if Wendy Brown is right, then do the forces of globalization always act contrary to the sovereignty of the nation-state? No. And I don't think... I mean, her argument isn't about globalization in particular. Her argument mm. is about the perceived vulnerability of nation-states relative to... And not even, not even corporations, mm. but relative to each other. Mm. So the conflict for nation-states isn't with global economic organizations or with transnational and multinational mm. companies or even with the United Nations, mm. funnily enough, it is in fact a conflict between nation states. There is this this strange kind of um, transference of fear mm. onto other nation states when in fact, you know, the forces of globalization are, per, are are at work. Yes. You know. And and presumably then the weakness that the wall represents or the sense of insecurity that the wall represents is not just a sense of insecurity felt by the nation state relative to the neighboring nation state but also to the voices of dissent that exist within the nation state. Yes. So in other words... Trump's U.S.-Mexico wall is designed to frighten Mexico, but it is also designed to frighten Americans of Mexican origin. Yes, or any any Central or South American mm. origin. So mm. the wall rhetoric comes also with immigration rhetoric. I will deport them all. Mm. You know, he, he says these things. Mm. And so the the wall and immigration policy go hand in hand mm. in a way which feels quite a bit like, you know, when we were talking about Agamben a couple of weeks ago in this state of exception and Agamben's work on camps, mm. there is there is this construction of of inside and outside space that relegates certain bodies as being inside or outside, whether or not they're actually inside or outside. Yes. yes. Um, Echo's formulation here is, is selective populism. Yeah. Where he uses the wonderfully paradoxical phrase populist elitism. And it is absolutely that, right? It is, yeah. It is, on the one hand, gesturing towards uh, lowest common denominator, you know, everyone who is 
not at ground zero is going to be brought down which but hiding behind that apparently revolutionary rhetoric is a much more insidious elitism which is preventing any kind of class resistance yes what's interesting and unique about trump and modi is their position in the economic system mm. Um, not so much their class position, mm. but their the political ideology that they mobilize in terms of developing visions for national economy and a, and their participation in the global economy. Mm. Modi's economic platform was, and we talked about this a lot during the election, mm. where a lot of people, a lot of voters, you felt who normally would have been quite anti-Modi, um, were seduced mm. by the BJP's economic platforms. Mm. Trump as well mobilizes a sort of, he says he's going to be the best jobs president ever. Mm. He's going to make jobs while at the same time being management. Because, of course, the, the threat posed by immigration is an economic threat. Yeah. So once you deport all the immigrants, there'll be more jobs going. Presumably. Presumably. That, you know, that's the logic. What happens to an economy where you take 11 million people out is, is of course, another question completely. The economic position of Modi is, is really interesting because one of the planks that Modi used and continues to use as, as a way to generate support is economic development. Modi... Modi, famously as chief minister of Gujarat, was the development chief minister, and as prime minister, he is he continues to 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 lay claim to the mantle of development prime minister, and that economic development is linked in various ways to a to a securitization. In other words, the nation as a whole will be more secure through economic development, and this takes all sorts of bizarre forms. So one of the one of the things that discursively the Modi government has been obsessed with is indoor plumbing to yes. ensure that houses have indoor toilets. Now, it would be nice, or other things being equal, for all families to be able to afford to have indoor toilets. But the way that that developmental gesture is, is being used is being used, there are two different examples. One is that Indoor toilets were suggested as a useful way to reduce the number of sexual assaults. In other words, if women don't have to go outside the house to use the toilet, they are less likely to be sexually assaulted. We can unpack that in all sorts of different yeah. ways. So the idea that the home is, is, is where the woman is safe, well, you know. Is that true? Feminism 101, we know it isn't. The idea that a woman going outside should necessarily leave her open to sexual assault is a question that this strategy doesn't answer at all. The other, just as bizarre and just as problematic uh, movement has been a, a having indoor plumbing as a criteria for someone who wants to stand in elections. So there you have this sense of your individual class position 
being explicitly connected to whether or not you're allowed to represent people. Yeah. And of course, in both of these examples, you have the fundamentally fascist trope of creating a glorious nation by violently excluding what Agamben calls states of exception, you know, create co constructing these categories of bodies, these categories of human beings who are explicitly not part of your nation state. So who are they? A anyone who disagrees with you, ultimately. But there are certain categories who are more easily identified and more easily silenced. Um, so for Modi's India, probably the number one is Muslims. Um, they've been at least, at least a couple that I know of, including one particularly significant uh, moment, event in, in Dadvi, where a Muslim man was lynched because the the mob suspected that he was eating beef. So you know he he was Muslim, and Muslims eat beef. And Hindus don't support the eating of beef, and that in and of itself is reason enough to kill him. Um, Dalits, so-called untouchables, lower caste human beings. Why? Um, why and why Dalits? This is, I think, I'm. I mean, I know, but I think some of our listeners who aren't from India and who aren't familiar with India will be more confused about caste here mm. and and Hindu nationalism. What is the relationship between Hindu nationalism and caste, Hannah? Hindu nationalism has actually quite a complex relationship with caste. It's, it's paradoxical because caste is posited as being central to the Hindu way of life, to the practice of Hinduism. It is the social ordering of of Indian society. And here, of course, in in Hindu nationalist ideology, Hindu and Indian are equated. But Dalits and low caste people actually have a very tenuous position in Hindu nationalist ideology because a lot of Hindu nationalism and Hindu nationalist discourse embraces Vedic and Puranic teachings and beliefs about who and what Dalits are, that they are the embodiment of pollution, that they are the embodiment of, of cosmological impurity. And so therefore, they need to be cast out of society. But at the same time, and this is a fundamental paradox in Hinduism more generally that, you know, philosophers and intellectuals have been working through for centuries, is how do you maintain a caste system within Hinduism while incorporating Dalits into a political framework? And Hindu nationalism... I think has struggled quite a bit with this, mm. but the the way that it's going, the way that the discourse is moving, and we we talked last week about the um, militant 
paramilitary wings of, of Hindu fascism, that there is quite a bit of violence and aggression towards Dalits. Yes. And one of the forms that this aggression takes is to attack what is one of the foundations of the Indian constitution, which is uh, the concept of reservation or um, affirmative action. In other words, four particular university and college seats, four particular government jobs, including parliament, there, there are constitutionally mandated quotas for what is called scheduled castes and scheduled tribes. Scheduled because the list of castes and tribes appear in a schedule to the constitution. Um, the Indian constitution was, if, for those of you who don't know, was uh, written by a committee led by perhaps the most famous and the most important Dalit scholar India has had, Dr. B. R. Ambedkar, and in, in and of itself, in social democratic terms, it is quite a progressive document. And it enshrines constitutionally the right for these uh, scheduled castes and scheduled tribes to have their own representation in government jobs and in legislative system. Now, one of the aspects of this resurgence of internationalism across India has been a direct explicit, explicit attack on reservations because of course historically speaking the the logic or one of the logic bits of logic behind the caste system is a professional segregation i you said earlier caste the the dalits are symbols of pollution because they do jobs that the upper caste don't want to do yes they do dirty jobs, they do messy jobs, they do, you know, unpleasant jobs. And of course, if you have a truly representative aff affirmative action infrastructure, that allows Dalits to get other jobs. Yes. And this is something that what's called the general category, people who are not Dalits, would rather not happen. So you have this paralleling of the attack of, on universities with an increased attack on what is seen as the entitled Dalit, who feels that they are entitled to jobs, that it is somehow easier to get work or to get get into universities if you are from a Dalit background. But of course, the reverse is true. It is much, much harder. Um, caste oppression is very much reality in large parts of India. Yes. It's interesting the way that that affirmative action debates get played out in the United States. Of course there's a there's a big um, case in the United States at the moment about affirmative action. A, a young woman who was believed that she was passed over for a college admission spot at University of Texas. Um, in favor of African-American students has had her her case taken through the courts. Um, and there are, some, there are some similarities, but there are also some clear differences. But I think Trump 
and his supporters do also buy into the belief that that people who benefit from affirmative action have an easier time. And it means that if you are white or if you are a man or if you are straight, that life has been made more difficult for you. And that is probably the clearest aspect of Trump's Making America Great Again slogan. Because what he means is making life easier once again for white people, for man people, for straight people. Yes, um, and you always know affirmative action is effective because privilege gets insecure. Privilege, privileged people start worrying about their positions of privilege because the so the the argument that certainly in india is used to critique reservations critique affirmative action is the meritocratic argument which says that we should treat everyone equally because that is the fair fair and just way of proceeding but of course that imagines a different world where caste oppression, gender oppression doesn't exist. Yeah. And of course that is the world that the the fascist dreams of. Because in the world the fascist dreams of, there is no lower caste. There is no marginalised. They don't exist. So they can't be oppressed. Yes. But the way that they don't exist isn't that that systems of oppression have been dismantled yes. and have been replaced with fairer and equal systems. Yes. The way that these that these fascist ideals are realized is through either the extermination yes. physically through yes. through genocidal means yes. or through the exclusion of various people and groups who are turned into outsiders. Yes. And the the genocidal trope is absolutely no exaggeration so over the last couple of days one of the w one of the people who have been active on twitter in support of modi is the bollywood actor anupam kher who uh tweeted in hindi about um d describing the actions that the government has taken in respect of jnu that we discussed last week he described those actions as, quote, a national pest control, comparing the way one might use pest control in one's home to clear out cockroaches and mosquitoes and insects to the cleaning of the nation. And the, the concept of the, of the cleansed nation is something that resonates very strongly with a, a particular 20s, 30s Ital Italian, German, Nazi fascist movement. Yes. And of course, it also resonates with Trump's Making America Great Again, right? The, the cleaning up of America, of, of all these undesirable elements, um, everyone who, who don't agree with him. Yes. And especially people who aren't white. Yes. There is, we, we've talked a little bit about race and caste. 
the third major aspect of this of the undesirable is of course gender yes and the other the other commonality across trump and modi and what they represent is a particularly virulent misogyny um do you want to talk about trump's misogyny yeah trump's misogyny is is fascinating because it is so american in a sense it's so plain speaking and he gets he gets defended by people who say this is a boys will be boys kind of attitude he's just being a man because men are sexual beings you know this, there's plenty of people who defend donald trump in this way and he's you know he's he's gone on record many many times over many decades saying derogatory things about women particularly of a sexual nature but he's also i mean in in the course of his campaign he's been called out for saying ridiculous stuff you know talking about Megan Kelly blood coming out of her whatever what is who gets to say that like that's it's just so absurd and bizarre and gross and overt but it is applauded by his supporters because it is it's not only plain speaking but it is putting women back in their place she shouldn't have been you know according to a particular a particular sort of trump supporter megan kelly was was out of her depth moderating a debate and she should not have been in a position to question donald trump because she's a woman the attacks not just by trump himself on Megyn Kelly or Carly Fiorina and you know these these are republican right wing figures they I mean they might not agree with Trump but they're certainly not progressive figures in and of themselves yeah they're certainly not women who would come to the defense of other women in a feminist yes, way yes uh, but by virtue of being women they are open to Trump's attack and also by virtue of being women they're open to ridiculously misogynist attacks on twitter and the blogosphere by Trump supporters. And that is something which parallels very very closely the way um particular feminist uh and f- women socialist or, or women marxist activists who have dared to raise their voice whether offline or online against Hindu nationalism and the the ways in which explicit threats of gender violence gendered violence is is used to try to silence these women speaks to the similar strategy of silencing muslims and dalits as categories that need to be managed out of existence or exterminated out of existence in order for the fascist nation to establish itself which is which is interesting as well because there's a contradictory there's a contradictory element here because of course hindu fascism has a a positive image of women what how women should behave because of course women are central to ideologies of nation building and not just to fascist ideologies of nation building but i mean the the story of of 
women as the educators and creators of the next generation of citizens. That is that is filtered through many different kinds of narratives of the nation state. And it's interesting to see the, the explicit rhetoric that Donald Trump has mobilized, which doesn't seem to focus on that aspect. Like he, he hasn't, for example, made the news for referring to women as, as breeders, um, or, saying that that a good woman should you know be some sort of gross vessel for men's sexual desires and future children i wonder if this distinction has something to do with the distinction in terms of religion that you pointed to earlier on because a large part of the rss model or the bjp model of what a good hindu woman should be like is drawn specifically from religious texts yeah. as to the duties of a wife. So, is there, I mean, is there a connection between their differing positions on the women's role and Modi's Hinduism versus Trump's Christianity? I mean, probably. Trump has a lot of, a lot of criticism. He's gotten a lot of criticism from from right-wing conservative Protestant Christians. And also he's he's starting a feud with the Pope, of course. He's so going to lose that feud. Um, yes, he will. I mean, the, the entirety of Europe tried to start a feud with the Pope and lost. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's just... But it is really interesting because Trump's... Trump's conservative religion doesn't look like Bush's conservative religion. And there's, in some ways, a rejection of the woman as a domestic figure and the insertion of the woman as a purely sexual figure mm. with Trump. And I don't know if it's just his personality. Because he's also... So. Not that this is should surprise us about Trump anymore, but he has also made statements about how if his daughter wasn't his daughter, he would like to marry his daughter. Has he not? He Yeah. I mean, I heard Freud roll over in his grave. Yeah. That, that day. Yes. I mean, it's just... Yeah, he... He mobilizes the sexual tropes mm. in a way that I'm not sure that I've seen mm. before. Yeah. And it's, I mean, the, the, the relationship to religion is really interesting. I was, I was listening to, um, the 538 team blog. Uh, I was reading the 538 team blog about the Nevada elections and they, they pointed out the contradiction when someone like Trump, for whom such a large part of his wealth is from gambling, yeah. and how well he does among the evangelical Christian population, which is a contradiction that isn't easy to explain, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, there's, there is the, there is kind of the, the strands of Calvinism there. Mm. 
there's a place in heaven for those who earn the most mm. wealth mm. and build up the most wealth mm. on earth, which is hilarious given the actual facts around Trump's money yes. and where it came from mm. and how he has managed it. Mm. But, I mean, we, you know, we don't really care about facts. No. But if we're it, Trump supporters. It, it, it maps onto um, the discourse that Modi uses in order to demonstrate his common touch um, in the way he apparently came out from nothing and worked in a tea stall uh, to support himself. And that somehow allows him to represent working class people irrespective of the incredible damage that his policies are doing to working class people. Yeah. I want to bring in Hannah Arendt uh, a bit here. We've been returning to Hannah Arendt periodically um, for over these two two episodes. And I'd just like to read this, this brief quote from The Origins of Totalitarianism, where Arendt is talking about the kinds of categories that we've been talking about. Muslims, Dalits, um, gay people, African-Americans, Latinos, women, as as categories that have to be silenced uh, by the, by the uh, particular brand of fascism. So Aaron says, quote, Nothing perhaps illustrates the general disintegration of political life better than this vague, pervasive hatred of everybody and everything, <laughs> without a focus for its passionate attention, with nobody to make responsible for the state of affairs, neither the government, nor the bourgeoisie, nor an outside power. It consequently turned in all directions, haphazardly and unpredictably, incapable of assuming an air of healthy indifference toward anything under the sun. And I think this is rather uncannily prescient about both Trump and Modi. Yes. I agree. It's the the unfocused the unfocused hatred, which we we were talking a bit before about about paranoia and fear, and Noam Chomsky has often said that it is that paranoia and fear which leads to the hatred, and which leads to the action without thought, and so they're deeply connected. But of course, the effect is, on the one hand, racism. But of course, Hannah Arendt is talking about the Holocaust and the logical conclusion of this kind of hatred, which is, of course, genocidal violence. Yes. Which is what Action Without Thought leads to, right? The Action Without Thought that Trump and Modi endorse is the, the action to exterminate those they disagree with uncoupled from any kind of thought that would critique those actions. And the logical conclusion of that is genocidal violence, as we saw in Gujarat, yes. when Modi was chief minister. Um, for those of you who don't know, as chief minister of Gujarat, Modi presided over some of the worst communal rights, genocidal violence that independent India has seen. Yes. There's some connections 
here with with Foucault and biopolitics and and governmentality although I think with with Foucault's theories he's talking about institutions um, in a way that we're sort of leaving aside for this discussion. Yes, I think also as as much as Foucault is applicable I completely agree. I think there's also a sense in which I don't know if Foucault helps us think through fascism as a distinct category. In other words, the tropes that Foucault talks about are tropes that nation states that have that take the form of parliamentary democracy use. Yeah, I mean he's concerned with modernity. Yes. So for him the uh, parliamentary democracy and fascism exist on a sliding scale. Yes. And they are two sides of the same yes. coin yes. because they are modern organizations of territory and populations. Whereas Hannah Arendt is more specifically looking at the forms and functions of totalitarianism as a form of political control. Yes. And I think we, we spoke very briefly in passing about the British government last last week. And I think we are completely with Foucault on this notion that there are fascistic tropes or fascistic tendencies identifiable in parliamentary democracy. But we also want to say that, um, and scholars have said this before, the Bishanand has said this before about, about Modi, for example, that Modi and Trump represent a qualitative change, a break in the way Indian-American democracy functions. This is something different. Yes. I think that's true. I think, um, at least for the, the purposes of our analysis, it's true. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, even on a more superficial level, the world is saying... Trump and Modi are different. Yes. I think especially with Trump because he's been around for less time in this particular context. I mean, their supporters want them to be different, right? Yeah. Their supporters wouldn't like them to be the same. Yeah, that's how they work. Yes. It is how they work. But Foucault absolutely helps us to think about the ways in which Modi more so so far than Trump because Modi has actually has got actual power, actual state power in the way that Trump hasn't yet. But the way in which the state power is used to re to enforce this silencing, this ma making into an exception of these these other categories. Yes, it's interesting. I mean, this last quote that that you have here about. The, I mean, Hannah Arendt is talking about a map. She's talking about a metaphorical map. Um, I want to read the quote out. Yeah, so she's, she writes, Now the police dreams that one look at the gigantic map on the office wall should suffice at any given moment to establish who is related to whom and in what degree of intimacy. And theoretically, this dream is not unrealizable, although its technical execution is bound to be somewhat difficult. Of course, you know, we, we live in an in the context of big data and the internet. So this 
dream has been realized to a great extent um, and, and remains a primary concern of the state and of governments and of corporations. Um, but I'll, I'll continue with the quote. If this map really did exist, not even memory would stand in the way of the totalitarian claim to domination. Such a map might make it possible to obliterate people without any traces, as if they had never existed at all. And this is, I mean, it speaks to the collection of, of data and information and the storing and, you know, later application of, of data, um, either, you know, in the form of, of internet traces or um, cell phone data or images caught on CCTV or even, you know, as the case may be on cameras mounted on drones because, of course, the U.S., has been using drones to survey and, and monitor protests. Um, all of this data gets stored. So this map, in a sense, has been has been created um, that, that Hannah Arendt is talking about. And for her, this is, this is the tool for total totalitarian rule. Um, what's interesting, of course, is is we were talking about how the British government and the U.S. government at the moment is not, we're not calling them fascist. We don't think that they necessarily fit with, with ECHO's criteria. But the rise in surveillance and cybersecurity, as well as biometric and biopolitical security, leads to the question of, you know, are, are the Modi-Trump schools... And the status quo state um, apparatus, are they moving towards each other in many ways? Are they just rhetoric which hides what is actually going on, which is the state's continued collection and application of ever more sensitive and detailed information? And manipulation of. Yes. So so one of the one of the ways in which this manipulation is made even easier is through media. So going back to the JNU story from last week, one of the examples of manipulation of images in order to regulate student opinion um, was this this particular news outlet got caught photoshopping a, a, an image of a a student leader who was giving a speech about in uh, a speech in which he was criticizing the government now that image was there was a, a map of india and pakistan superimposed in the background behind him in order to make the case that he was giving an anti-national speech so the the government and the nation are being sublimated together so that criticizing modi becomes criticizing the nation. Yeah. And the <clears throat> way in which that criticism is demonstrated is using the map. Um, the same map that Hannah Arendt talks about as a way of exercising control. Yes, which is which is sort of, you know, the the basic standard claim of, of critical cartography, which is that maps are a tool for power. 
and they absolutely, um, you know, it is now illegal in India to reproduce the national border in any form that India doesn't recognize. Um, well, yes, Google got into trouble with yes. that recently, drawing a, a border in Kashmir that the Indian government didn't recognize. The media, the police, so the to use the the various forms of state apparatus to use. Althusser's phrase, you know, the ideological state apparatus and the repressive state apparatus, the ways in which the repressive forces, police, army, paramilitary units, and the ideological forces, religion, schools, universities, education system, are both being explicitly mobilized in order to reinforce a particular notion of nationhood. Um, the Indian government recently passed a directive saying that all central universities, nationalized central universities, will now have to display the national flag as a symbol of their allegiance in an explicit attempt to silence dissent, to silence critique of the government happening on those university campuses. And you can imagine Trump doing something similar. Yeah, and I think in the United States there's a there's a political will for that sort of thing anyway. You know, there's um it's it's standard, right? The, the what I find really funny about about people in Britain and Europe is how traumatized they are at the idea of school children in the United States standing up and putting their right hand over their heart and saying I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, where in, in every classroom, ideally, there is an American flag. I mean, I, that's the story of my early years in education. Um, and it, I did not realize that not every country did that until I left. And it's a, the seeds of, of some of these some of these practices and um, new traditions and rhetorics are there, I think, in, in both contexts and perhaps in all, in all contexts within a nation-state system. In other words, the nation-state has within it the potential to be fascist. Yeah. And in some moments, when you have movements like like that of Trump and Modi, that potential gets realized to a greater or lesser extent. Yeah. I think that's a good note to end on. Yeah, I'd week. say so. Um, thanks a lot for listening. Yeah, thank you. And we will see you next week. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Richardry. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our music was provided by the Agrarians, and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you. Where would we be?